John 6, we're going to do the last 11 verses today, verses 60 through 71. Father, thank you for your word, God. Thank you that you have preserved it for us, Lord, and that you've given it to us in our own language that we might understand it and know it and know you through your word. God, I thank you for these saints. I thank you for the body of Christ gathered, and when we gather, Father, there is uh, something just so special and wonderful that happens, God. We thank you, Father, that you've allowed us uh, to come together this morning to hear from you, Father. We ask that you would speak mightily, powerfully through your word, that you would pierce our hearts and that you would engage our minds, God, as we wrestle, Father, with the truths of your word that are often difficult, but we know that in them are life and spirit, God, and so we come before you uh, with humble reverence this morning, and we ask for your help, for your blessing. Please move, Father, by your spirit uh, to instruct us, God, to refresh us, to lift our countenance, Father, as we consider the great things that you've done. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Golly. Ah. Okay. Let's do this thing. So, we're going to close out chapter 6 today. As I said, and as we close the chapter, it seems here that John's content is wrapped up in a way that is very full circle. I would say it's, it's nicely packaged, so to speak, and it comes to a powerful and complete ending to this scene that we've been in for quite some time now, this uh, bread of life discourse, which is uh, following the feeding of the 5,000. Now, the whole chapter, you guys know, we've been dealing with different groups of people. Um, I will call them throughout the rest of the morning would-be disciples, right? People that were interested in Jesus for one reason or another, but that ultimately fall away. And they've shown us many of the different reasons why one might do this, that one might kind of follow after Jesus for a time and then ultimately depart and so the question to answer here becomes, why do we follow Jesus? Why should we follow him? What should we seek after him for? What makes a true follower as opposed to a mere onlooker who will ultimately fall away? And these questions, they arise out of the text, and they, they began, obviously, with the testing of the disciples, if you remember, all the way back to the beginning of the chapter. Jesus was testing his disciples. And that was followed by the exposing of the naysayers, and then now it's concluded again with the testing of the faithful disciples. You guys with me? Remember the chapter? It's, I don't even know how many weeks in a row we've been in John 6. Um, and so now we've seen at least three types already of those who will fall away. You guys remember we had the sign seekers, those who were more interested in spectacle than they were in the Savior. They wanted to see Jesus continually performing miracles, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that necessarily, but that was their greatest motivation. They wanted to see the cool stuff go down. So we had the sign seekers, number one, and then number two, we had the king seekers, right? These are the people that saw that this was uh, an amazing opportunity for them to be liberated politically, uh, socially from the uh, weight that they were under. So you had the king seekers, those who wanted to take Jesus, it says, by force and make him king. That's a pretty interesting situation. You know, most people would just line up and say, yeah, go ahead. But they wanted to make him king by force. 
And then third, we had the bread seekers, right? Some of y'all are bread seekers. Just kidding. Donut seekers, whatever it may be, bread seekers. These are the folks that got a full belly, right? And praise God, you know, a a full belly keeps you coming back. So they said, we're going to follow this guy around and we're going to get the bread, you know? So we had sign seekers, king seekers, bread seekers. Uh, Warren Wearsby, if you're familiar with him, he helpfully divides this section, the, the bread of life discourse, into four parts. You got seeking, murmuring, striving, and departing. And today we find ourselves in the departure section. If you've ever been to SFO, that is the upper level, right? Departures, baggage claim is downstairs. So anyway, it's a helpful way to remember the end of John 6. This is the departure section where the conclusion of the chapter here answers these questions for us. What does a true follower look like? Why should we follow him? And it gives us a full picture, a full contrast between the would-be disciple and the true disciple. So those are the terms I'm going to be using interchangeably uh, throughout the morning. So we're going to pick up in verse 60 here. It says this, So then many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This statement is very unpleasant. Who can listen to it? So when they heard this, heard what exactly? Well, this is referring directly back to verses 53 through 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. The one who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, The one who eats this bread will live forever. So in response to Jesus' words, many said, this is very unpleasant. Or it may say in your Bible, this is a hard saying. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? I think the NASB is, is very helpful in its translation here of very unpleasant. Very unpleasant. Because they're not referring to the difficulty of understanding Jesus although they really didn't get what he was saying anyway, but that's not really the point. The difficulty is not with understanding, but what John is communicating here is that these things were unpleasant. They were hard. They were hard not to understand, but to accept. Hard to accept. The words of Jesus, in fact, were intolerable to them. They said, who can listen to this? Who can listen to this guy? And Jesus, knowing what was going on, it seems to be something he often is able to do. He knows what's going on. Verse 61 says, But Jesus, aware that his disciples were complaining about this, said to them, Is this offensive to you? Is this offensive to you? Now, keep in mind, the word disciples is being used very generally speaking here. It's, it's just people that were following him around. So we're talking about a bigger group. This group is going to get whittled down and whittled down and whittled down as the chapter closes. But when he says disciples, he's not referring specifically to the 12 here. He's referring to the whole group that's been following Jesus around. And so he turns to them and he says, is this offensive to you? Is this offensive to you? 
Again, he makes it clear that it was not a problem of the intellect, but a problem of the heart. They say the words of Jesus are hard. But in fact, it is what that's hard? The heart. Their hearts are hardened against him. They're hardened against the Lord and his words because they do not belong to him. We know it's never the failure of the word of God. Does the word of God fail? It can't. The word of God does not fail, but it's the heart. It's the person. It's the heart of man that always fails. And so number one for you note takers, would-be disciples will take offense at the words of Jesus. Would-be disciples will take offense at the words of Jesus. Now, I'll admit, that may seem painfully obvious, right? When you tell people about Jesus and they're offended by it, it's like, well, yeah, no duh. But keep in mind, guys, that there are millions of people across the world and even here in the United States within certain religions that claim to be Christians, right, that claim to love Jesus, but they stumble at his words. And when faced with unpleasant truths that come out of the Scripture, that come from the mouth of Jesus, unpleasant truths, hard truths about the nature of mankind, the nature of God, the deity of Christ, the exclusivity of Christ, right, the only way, the only truth, the only life, the atonement, that God punished his son in our place, the wrath of God, that God is angry against sin, eternal heaven and hell, so on and so on. These things are offensive to the natural person. And those who say, we love Jesus, we're Christians, we believe his word, they falter and crumble and deny his words when faced with these truths or perhaps twist them to, to say something else, right? You know, there, there is really no hell. There's just, you know, you just kind of, you poof. You, you poof when, when, you, when you die. You know, you just, you cease to exist. You, you disappear. Or, you know, Jesus didn't really say he was God. He said he was a God or, or he's like God or he's kind of a God, but not really. He's a, he's a, you know, he's like Hercules. His ankle didn't quite go all the way. Or no, that's Achilles. Never mind. I don't know. We're not going to get into Greek mythology here, but you know what I'm saying. And, and you guys are aware of these different groups. Because his word, his word is harsh to those who do not have ears to hear it and receive it. And if you've ever been an unbeliever, which some, all of you have at some point or another, you know that hearing this stuff is offensive. It's, it's not pleasing to hear. You want the conversation to end as soon as possible so you can get out of it. It's like, please leave me alone with this. Jesus says in John 8, 31, we will get there eventually by God's grace, he says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We've got to continue in his word, always reverencing his word, always humbling ourselves under it. The marker of a false disciple is one who does not continue in the words of Christ. When offense comes, there is found to be no root in their belief. It is superficial, seeking something other than Jesus, the signs, the bread, the opportunity, whatever it may be. Wearsby puts it this way, the preaching of the word of God always leads to a sifting of the hearts of the listeners. God draws sinners to the Savior through the power of the truth, his word, 
Those who reject the word will reject the Savior, right? Jesus said, if you didn't believe Moses' words, how are you going to believe me? But those who receive the word will receive the Savior and experience the new birth, eternal life. Amen? So why are these particular followers so offended? Well, they had their reasons, and I would submit to you guys that there is nothing new under the sun. It's the same reasons that we get offended by the word now today. Many of them were more interested in the things mentioned earlier, food, politics, miracles. In other words, they were not spiritually minded, but earthly minded here and now. That would be similar to our prosperity seekers or our cultural Christians, you know? Yeah, my granddaddy built this church in, what was it, Mohawk, Tennessee? I don't know, I try to, you know, remember Rob's references, but uh, yeah, my granddad built this church in Mohawk, Tennessee, and of course I'm saved, you know? My granddaddy built this church. Well, that's kind of irrelevant, you know? He doesn't say all whose grandfathers built churches will have eternal life. You've got to eat the bread for yourself. So folks that are concerned mostly with the affairs of this life, right? What can I get out of Jesus? What can he help me with here? Not a crucified Savior. That's what we got to put our heart and our minds and our attention on. Secondly, many stumbled over his claim to have come down from heaven, and rightfully so. So these would be the deniers of his deity. That would be our, our liberal theologians for today, our open theists, our new agers. Right? Jesus is a, is a great teacher. He's a good guy. He had some good morality, but he's certainly not God. He can't be God. It's, it's, it's an absurd thing to say. Many stumbled over his claim to be greater than Moses, that he was sent by God to give true life to the world. These folks hold men in reverence over the God-man, over Christ, over God in the flesh himself. And even more were stumbled by the offensive taboo metaphor of eating and drinking his blood. And so the offenses just abound and abound and abound. It's offense after offense after offense. And we also know if we live in this world that any absolutes are inherently offensive, right? Two opposing things cannot be true at the same time. And unfortunately, as much as our current culture would like to tell us otherwise, we cannot have two different positions and both be right. Somebody has to be wrong, and that is just the way it is. A door can't be open and shut at the same time. A car can't be blue and red at the same time unless it has a two-tone paint job. You can't be something and not be something. It's called the law of non-contradiction, right? If one thing is true, then the opposite cannot be true, and that is offensive, Take, for example, some of you guys are probably highly engaged in this. You've got the pineapple on pizza debate, right? Have you guys ever heard people talk about this? I've never seen folks get so fired up over bread with sauce on it than this pineapple issue. And most people will say it is absolutely wrong to put it on pizza under any circumstances. And this is very offensive to the folks that like it. They go, look, man, why are you, why are you coming at me like this? I like pineapple on pizza. What's, what's the big deal? And they say, no, it's wrong. It doesn't belong there. And there is a, there's a heated debate over this topic, right? And you, I've seen you guys get into it, literally right here in the cafe area. And I see the vein on your forehead starting to bulge out over pizza. It's amazing. And look at the offense that's caused by such a simple thing. 
You know that if you've ever tried engaging someone with these truths, not the truths concerning pizza, the truths concerning Jesus, right? If you've ever tried engaging someone with these truths, they are offensive to the natural person. They are. And so our natural tendency in light of that is to, is to do what? It's, it's to soften truths in order that we might not offend, right? Now, it is a good thing, I would submit to you guys, to not have a burning desire in your heart to just go out and offend people. If that's something that gets you fired up, you need to check your heart. It is not our job, our calling, nor duty to go out and be purposely offensive to people. It does not produce anything good. So if, if that's your <laughs> objective, turn, repent, okay? But if we are going to engage people with the truths of the Scripture, we are going to offend. And if we try to soften truths in order to not offend, in doing so, we're only going to compound the problem because we're robbing people of the opportunity to respond rightly to the whole truth of God. Take courage in knowing that Jesus knows those who are his. He knows those who won't take offense at him. And he knows full well that many will not receive him. And so his message remains the same. He doesn't switch up because people are getting offended, because he can't. He is truth. He is the embodiment of truth. And so the words that proceed from his mouth will always be nothing but the truth and the whole truth. So he is not preaching here to please the audience or their numbers would have only continued to grow, right? He is doing crowd reduction. Rather, it seems, knowing what the outcome of all of this would be, he anticipates even further offense that is to come. The truth concerning his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the things that are hope and life and comfort to the believer are even further offense and foolishness to the hardened. That which is intended to bring hope produces offense when it falls on deaf ears. And that leads us into uh, verse 62. He says, does this offend you? Well, what then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? So he says, does this, does this metaphor that I've given you, does this offend you? Well, what if you were to see this? It seems to me that this is a rhetorical question that implies, look, if you're offended now by what I'm saying, just you wait. You ain't seen nothing yet, right? You ain't seen nothing yet. There are two possibilities, though, and the text does not necessarily demand one or the other. The first one is what I just mentioned, which I'll, I'll clarify in a moment. But the other possibility is that he's saying, you're offended now, but when you see me ascend, you will see who I really am, and the offense will be removed. You will be convinced, right? What if you were to see me ascend? What would you say then? Oh, man, I was wrong. You know, I, I didn't understand. It could be either, but I believe that the context lends itself to the first option, you think my words are offensive, wait until you see what is to come. The ultimate scandal, the ultimate offense is yet to be seen, and that is the crucified Messiah. The crucified Messiah, the ultimate scandal, the ultimate offensive message. Recall in Matthew 16, 
Uh, just after Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus begins to tell his disciples how he must suffer and be conspired against and killed and rise from the dead. And do you guys remember what Peter's response was? Was it a thumbs up? Yeah, Jesus, awesome, sounds great. No. Peter's response is that he took him aside and rebuked Jesus, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Never. It's a ludicrous idea. The suffering of Christ at that point was crazy, was ludicrous, even to his most zealous follower, even to Peter, who likes to run his mouth and jump out and speak for everybody. He says, absolutely not, never. And obviously, he's not studied Isaiah recently, but nevertheless, it was inconceivable to him that these things would happen to Jesus. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 that Christ crucified was to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. It's a stumbling block. It's foolishness. And I believe what Jesus is saying here is that those who were offended by his words would be doubly offended by the fullness of his mission, by the fullness of what he came to do. Because the manner in which he would ascend to where he was before was through the cross. If the eating his flesh and drinking his blood metaphor was offensive, how about a real, visible, shameful execution on a brutal Roman instrument of capital punishment? That is on a whole different level than just talking about something metaphorically. This was out in the open for everyone to see. Shameful. The prophet Isaiah predicts the sufferings of Christ in our place so explicitly in chapter 53. It's, it's incredible. And the two things that are just supremely offensive about what he wrote is first that God would crush his own son, the Messiah, the promised one. But second, that it was done in our place, in our place. This is so offensive. And so all that Jesus suffered reveals how bad we are. It reveals the due penalty that we deserve for our sin. These are extremely offensive truths. The prophet tells us that in our place he was despised. He was abandoned. He was bearing our sickness and pain. He was afflicted. He was struck down, humiliated, pierced for our offenses, crushed for our wrongdoings, that our punishment was laid upon him. He was oppressed. He was cut off. He was killed as a criminal. He was grieved and in anguish. And all of that in order to justify the wicked to satisfy the wrath of God, to pay our penalty, to bear our burden, to intercede for us and make us right with God. The cross of Christ is the most offensive message to the unbelieving ear because it displays not only the glorious grace of God, but the horrific implications, the horrific punishment for man's sin. It's offensive. It displays not only the glorious grace of God, but the just punishment and anger of God toward that sin that he poured out on his own son. This is unpleasant. This is very unpleasant. Who can hear it? Who can listen to this? 
that I'm an evil sinner headed for hell and the eternal wrath of an all-powerful God? It's offensive. It's extremely offensive. But conversely, it is glorious. Is it not? As Romans 1 says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. It was through His suffering and rising and ascending that He was declared to be truly who He claimed to be. It was through the cross, through the death, through the resurrection and the ascension that Jesus' claims are verified. It's because he rose from the grave that we know that he is who he said he is. As Philippians 2 says, this is one of my favorite passages in all the scripture, verse 7. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason... Also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It was through the greatest scandal in all of history that Jesus receives the greatest glory. It was through the scandal of the cross in our place that he is now ascended, exalted, and glorified forever. And so we cannot, Christian, as he did not, we cannot dilute or change the message of the cross in order to be less offensive to our hearers. Again, it's not our goal to offend, but offense is inevitable. And many will walk away because of it, as we will see here, verse 63. He says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh provides no benefit. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So, The words that Jesus has spoken to these people, he says they are spirit and they are life. The spirit gives life and the flesh alone provides no benefit. It's of no help. And so if one is to hear Jesus' words and believe, they must be heard with spiritual ears, not just the flappers on the side of the skull, right? It's not just these ears that hear Spiritual ears. He must be seen with spiritual eyes, right? Not just the squishy orbs in the front of your skull. Number two for the note-taken folks. Would-be disciples cannot grasp spiritual concepts. Would-be disciples cannot grasp spiritual realities. They can only see and hear Jesus through the eyes and ears of the flesh. They hear, but do not hear, right? They see, but do not see. Because their seeing and hearing are not in faith. That's Hebrews 4.2. If you see and hear and it's not mixed with faith, you will see and hear nothing that is of value. The words of Jesus are the very words of God. They're the words of the Spirit. Jesus cannot be separated in any way from 
his words. His words are who he is. What he says about himself, it's himself. Since he himself is the life of the world, his words about himself are life. He is the perfect embodiment of God in the flesh, the one on whom the Spirit descended and remained. And so as the Spirit gives life, the words of Jesus are spirit and life to the spiritual hearer, to the spiritual listener. Just as he is the bread from heaven that gives life, his words are the same. No doubt his listeners knew Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, where the prophet makes the same connection. He says, your words were found and I ate them, and your words became a joy to me and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, Lord God of armies. Those who have been called by God will eat his word with joy and delight. Do you guys experience that when you're in the word of God, when you're hearing the word of God, when you're being taught the word of God, when you're ministering the word of God to one another? Is it a joy and a delight to take in his word, to understand it? to apply it, to know it. It's joy and delight of our hearts, for we have been called by his name. Those who have been called will eat the word with joy, as we do week in and week out. But unbelief stops the ears and the hearts of the blind. So for you, Christian, remember who you are. Remember that God's word is the supreme authority in your life. God's word is the supreme authority in all of the universe, right? He spoke, and the universe came to be. He said, let there be light, and there was light. What God says goes, not only in an instructional sense, but in a real sense of he is the only one who can actually manifest things by his words, okay? Just so you guys know, you don't have that ability. You can't speak things into existence, okay? The law of attraction is not a law. It's a phenomenon. If I go looking for a silver car today, I bet you I'm going to find it, okay? God is the one who is able to speak things into existence. His word is supreme above all things. And there will be things inevitably in God's word that are hard to hear. Not just for the immature, but even for the mature believer, there are things in God's Word that are hard to hear. And I listed some of them earlier. I mean, the, the reality of hell, I think if we, if we really apply ourselves to try and grasp it, it's, it's horrifying. It's frightening. It's, it's disturbing. It is challenging. It's hard. But it is the revealed truth of God's Word, and He will be glorified in it. And so it is not our job to put God on trial. He is never on trial. It is only us, the creation, the created, the fallen, that is on trial. So we must humble ourselves under His Word and reverence His Word and believe His Word and keep His Word. If His Word's not true, then, you know, what are we doing here? I'm not giving you guys a TED Talk on, you know, how to do better in your, your business startup here. I mean, this is stuff that's only really helpful to a person who is spiritually alive or else we're wasting our time. So if God's word is true and all of it is true, then we have to submit ourselves to all of it. 
The things we love, the things we don't love, the things that are easy to hear, the things that are hard to hear. We've got to take it all for what it is. It's the word of the living God. Amen? Amen. This mindset, this perspective, this humility will produce true understanding. It will produce true knowledge. It will produce true wisdom. When we are willing to say, God, your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Your ways are higher than my ways. I'll take you at your word, and I will believe you, and I will follow you. Even if I can't see how it's going to play out, I will walk by faith, and I will trust that your ways are better than mine. Proverbs 15.33, the preacher says, The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. The fear of the Lord Humility, these are the things that produce wisdom. These are the things that will truly instruct us. His ways higher, his thoughts higher. So in regard to those who did not believe his words, to kind of bring us back to where we're at here, Jesus was not surprised in the slightest. Jesus is unsurprisable, okay? We have a little game that we'll play sometimes here in the church during the week. Uh, where we'll sneak up on each other, you know? It's good to have a little fun once in a while. Uh, get your heart rate up. Someone pops around the corner and scares the skin off of you. Uh, keeps you on your toes, keeps you vigilant, you know? Got to be aware. It's a, it's a crazy world out there. Jesus cannot be surprised. I don't think that anyone would be able to sneak up behind him and freak him out. Nor would they be able to tell him something that surprises him. Nor would they be able to do something that catches him off guard. He knew from the beginning those who were his and those who would not believe, and he knew who would betray him. This was all according to God's eternal and unchangeable purpose and plan for his son. Before there was a creation, God had this all planned. And so Jesus was not shaken or deterred in the slightest by their unbelief. In fact, put your eyes on verse 65 with me. He was saying, For this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And as a result of this, many of his disciples left and would no longer walk with him. So what he says here is a restatement and clarification of what was said in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, we can, if, we're, if we're reading through John, we can speculate and infer all day long about what that drawing looks like. What does it mean to draw him? What does it look like? How does it work? How does it play out? Am I being drawn? Am I not being drawn? We can, we can do that all day long, or we could simply keep reading and see that he makes it perfectly clear here in verse 65. He's repeating himself. For this reason, I have told you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. The words of Jesus are so offensive, so foreign, so strange, and so intolerable to the unbeliever that they cannot come to him unless it has been granted them by the Father. Which is why he is not at all surprised by unbelief, because he knows those who are his, right? His sheep, or he knows his sheep, and they know him, 
and they hear his voice, and they follow him, and he gives them what? Eternal life. Number three for you note takers, true disciples, we're going to true disciples now, true disciples are those whom the Father has chosen for himself. True disciples are those whom the Father has chosen for himself. The word used here for granted is almost always translated as given. I think this is actually the only time in the entire New Testament that it's translated as granted, and it's just to kind of help understand what's going on here. But the word is give. It's the same word for give. It's the same word that's been used over and over in this chapter already. Jesus has been talking about give, 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 give. Verse 27, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. How do they respond? Lord, always give us this bread. Verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 51, the bread which I will give for the life of the world is also my flesh. Verse 52, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? This is all different forms of the exact same Greek word. The infinitive just means to give, okay? Give. So now, verse 65, he says, No one can come to me unless it has been given him from the Father, granted him from the Father. Now, there are many present here as Jesus is speaking. In fact, it's just about all the people who are listening who will leave and no longer walk with him from this point forward. And he told them earlier, Everyone that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will raise him up on the last day. And what did they do with that? They complained against him. And he told them, you've seen me, and yet you don't believe. And so he says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And the one whom the Father draws will never be cast out or lost, right? I did a message on security, perfect security, ultimate security. None that come to Christ will ever be lost or cast out. And now as we get to the end of the chapter, it's deja vu, and Jesus repeats himself again. The people following him, they're complaining and grumbling about his words again, and he responds, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it has been given, unless it has been granted him from the Father. Now, if you want to talk about hard sayings, which ironically we already have, look no further. This is a hard saying. It's a hard saying. It's a hard truth to grapple with. Not hard to understand, but often hard to accept. And so what will we do with it? What do we do with it? Do we skip over it? I read, a, <laughs> I read quite a few commentaries uh, during the week. Uh, I, I always do. And some folks literally skipped over this verse like it wasn't even there. It's like, well, let's move on here. Uh, so Jesus said to the 12, you know, and it's like, hello, can we, can we maybe try to understand what's going on here? Do we skip over it? Do we dilute it? Do we try to make him say something else? What, what do we do here? 
All I can say is that those who preach the word are bound by conscience and scripture to proclaim the truth, as the Lord did, of course, with all gentleness and humility, but not to please men and not to avoid offense. And I would submit to you guys that we can't get around what Jesus is saying here. We can't steer the boat around it and say, well, he didn't really say that or he didn't really mean that. He says, all whom the Father gives to Jesus will come to him and eat the bread of life. And they're secure and they will never be lost. And Jesus will raise them up on the last day as he promised. He said, no one can come to him unless the Father draws him. And the Father draws those whom he is giving to Jesus. And again, those people will be raised up on the last day. And he says again, even more clearly, after his hearers are offended at the words of life that he has spoken to them, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So the ones whom the Father has given to Christ have been given the ability to see him for who he is. Chosen, drawn, granted, secure, and destined for eternal glory. The truth is that the word of Jesus is so offensive, it is so foreign and and spiritually weighty that human beings in the flesh cannot accept it. They cannot come to him save for the divine initiative of the Father to reveal the truth to them. And so eternal life is in every sense of the word the free gift of God in Christ Jesus. It is a free gift He is the gift giver, and he gives it to whom he wills, right? That's John 5, 21. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we already read from here. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but listen, but to those who are the called of God, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The cross is foolishness to those who are not the called of God, but conversely, it is the power of God to those who are drawn, those to whom it has been granted. Those who are given to Jesus, granted eternal life. And so salvation is all of grace. It is all of God. It is all his doing. Not that he saw ahead of time something in us, but as Paul says in verse 30, and because of him, because of the Father, you are in Christ Jesus. This is consistent with Simon Peter's confession back in Matthew 16. He says, you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And how does Jesus respond? He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Blessed are you, Simon. God has revealed to you who I am. What we do with the identity of Jesus will be the only thing that matters at the day of the final judgment. What did we do with Jesus? Who did we believe him to be? Again, Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Infant, not wise and intelligent. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son determines to reveal him. True disciples have had the person of Jesus revealed to them by the Father. And on the contrary, would-be disciples cannot and will not come to him and see him and accept him for who he is. And as a result of this, verse 66, they left and would no longer walk with him. And so Jesus has shown, just as the prophet Isaiah predicted, to be a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Jesus is a sanctuary to the called, right? He is our sanctuary. He's our refuge. He is our safe place. But we're also told that he is a stumbling block to the Jews. Now, this is an amazing truth for the believer, right? We always have to get to the so what. Why does this matter? Who cares? Why are we even talking about this? This is an amazing truth for a believer because first and foremost, it is a pillar of our assurance. Assurance. I'm very concerned with your assurance. I'm concerned that you know that you belong to Christ and that you know you have eternal life and that you know you'll be raised up on the last day and that you know that nothing can snatch you out of his hand. I'm very concerned with that. You know that if you have come to Christ and have eaten the bread of life by seeing him for who he is and believing in him, that you are indeed among the called of God. And if you have come to Christ, you can never be lost because you are among those who have been given to the Son by the Father. You will be raised in glory on the last day. Just as surely as Jesus is the Son of God, you will be raised, and you will be raised with Him, and you will spend eternity with Him. It is a pillar of our assurance to know that God has chosen and secondly, it is a great encouragement and our hope to reach those who are outside of Christ. Again, I said earlier, if you've ever tried engaging people with these truths concerning Jesus, you probably know all too well how discouraging it can be at times. Sometimes it feels like you're smashing your head against a wall and the only person getting bruised is you, right? Going out and sharing this message with people, trying to engage with people in, in your sphere of influence, in your circle, people you run into, whatever it may be, it can be very discouraging because of the amount of folks that will say, I just don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. You'll find there are a multitude of reactions, but most of them are either awkward, hostile, or a combination of both awkwardly hostile, or they'll say, hey, that's great for you, leave me alone, or hey, that's great, 
Stop talking about the Jesus stuff, right? Or, hey, you're not supposed to talk about that in the workplace. And I go, look, this is the only thing I know how to talk about, so what else am I going to say, you know? Anyway, we talk about the things we love, do we not? If we love him, his words are going to be on our lips, plain and simple. You guys love your favorite restaurant in town? You've probably told people about it, right? Shout out, Fume Bistro, Sunshine Cafe, Petit Soleil, North, uh, yeah, shameless plug. Um, you talk about the things that you love. And so if, if you do love God, he will be on your lips. It's inevitable. And people are going to take offense at that. They're going to want you to shut up. Yeah? Okay. Just making sure we're on the same page here. It can be discouraging, but there is great hope in the fact that God is drawing people to himself. Right now, he's doing it through the message of the gospel, through the proclamation of the gospel, that Jesus Christ has done all that is needed for salvation. And there is great hope in knowing that despite the flaws in our efforts, how many of you have ever given a perfect gospel presentation to somebody? <laughs> a little hesitation. Well, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. Despite the flaws in our efforts, Despite the, the, despite the lack of perfection in our presentation, the fact that we don't always have the perfect answer or the response until 10 minutes later when we know exactly what we should have said, right? We're nervous. We wish we would have said something differently, maybe more gently, maybe with more tact, right? With more wisdom, not just steamrolled people. You're going to hell, you know? That, that it has a way of offending people. There are all kinds of things that we look back and go, man, maybe if I would have just done this, that person would have fallen on their face in tears and repentance before God and before me, right? In spite of our shortcomings, we can have hope and confidence. We can have hope and confidence that despite our shortcomings, ultimately salvation remains in the hands of God. Despite the impenetrable hardness of the human heart, God remains able to turn the most wicked and vile people for his glory. And I will stand here as a personal testament to the truth of that matter. A vile and wicked person. From the pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, right? The most proud man on the planet. Look at this glorious city that I have built. Isn't this great? The man got humbled. He got Turned all the way from pagan king Nebuchadnezzar to Paul, the self-proclaimed chief of sinners, a persecutor of the church, a murderer, a man who gave hearty approval to the destruction of God's people. There is no one that God cannot save. Do you believe that? There is no one that God cannot save. Now, we say a hearty amen to this. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But I guarantee there's someone in your heart that you know that you go, he could. Is he going to? Probably not. You know, like it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a long shot. Guys, it's always a long shot. There's no such thing as an almost Christian. You are either saved, regenerated, and alive, or you are dead. There's nobody who's like, oh, they're, they're basically saved. They just need a little you know, a little push. No, there's no one that God cannot save, and he can save the chief of all sinners. If he can do that, he can save anybody. 
And so we can have boldness and confidence that when we present hard truths, that although many will not be able to hear it, Christ is still building his church. And he has many sheep in the world yet to call home because he has not come back yet, has he? So he is still accomplishing his mission, seeking and saving the lost. Until he returns, there is hope for every single person on planet earth without exception without exception the most hardened person you know can be saved it's not just a friendly neighbor who is curious about your church they say oh tell me a little bit about your church and you're like oh i think the lord's drawing them you know you're like they're friendly they must you know they'd make a great christian stop with that you either believe in christ or you don't Friendliness is not going to work at the day of judgment, guys. Their friendliness is filthiness before God outside of Christ. You know, do we love friendly people? Yes. Praise God. It's not going to cut it. No one's friendliness is going to cut it on that day. It's not just a friendly neighbor who always smiles at you and, and brings you food when you need it, but for the hardest, most calloused of sinners the most lost, the most depraved, wicked, evil, treacherous people, there is hope just the same as there is for anybody else. God is able. Amen? So take that into your life this week. Try to see every person as somebody who God can save. They need to know who Jesus is. Come and eat the bread of life. All right, let's finish up. We're almost there. What time is it? Oh, Lord. Okay, uh, so we've got four points. We've done three already. Two concerning would-be disciples and two concerning true disciples. Would-be disciples will take offense at Jesus' words, and they cannot grasp spiritual truths. True disciples are those chosen by the Father. And finally, last one, true disciples abide in Christ. True disciples remain in Christ and in his word. Verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to leave also, do you? Here comes old Simon Peter. Verse 68. He answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have already believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. I wish they would have put verse 70 and 71 in the next chapter or something. It's a very awesome place to end. Um, So this is Jesus' final test for his disciples. Again, not the big crowd, the twelve. The twelve. He asked them a question, not because he doesn't know the answer, right? He knows what they're going to say. He doesn't ask them going, you guys aren't going to go too, are you? No, he asked them to test and confirm their faith. At this point, so many have walked away that there may not have been many more than 12 left, right? This crowd has completely dissipated. And surely this shook the disciples in, in some way or another, right? You see everybody just running for the hills like, what is going on here? However, Jesus was unfazed by their departure, 
And as true disciples, besides Judas, these men were not deterred either. When Jesus asks, you don't want to leave also, do you? The phrasing shows that he's expecting a no from them. He's not asking, wondering what they're going to say. He's expecting them to say no. It's kind of like when your mom asked you, well, if Johnny jumped off a bridge, would you jump too? Right? You guys have all, no matter how old you are, you've probably got hit with that at some point. Well, if, if, you know, Jeremiah stepped out in front of a car, would you do it too? Well, no. Of course not. That's the kind of answer that he's drawing out from them. He's pulling this answer out of them. Will they remain faithful in the face of a great turning away from his words? Jesus is preparing them for the future. Right? There's much more to come. He will be betrayed and handed over and crucified. So he's getting them ready. And in classic Simon Peter fashion, he speaks up for the whole class, right? Who wants to run the mile today? We do, teacher, we do. That's Peter. Every group has a Peter, somebody who loves to speak up for everybody else. And in this instance, it's one of the best responses ever. I love this passage. And without fail, these words ring in my head every single time that I want to give up. And I will be just totally transparent and honest with you guys. There have definitely been times where I have wanted to. To give up on ministry, to give up on the Christian life, to just walk away and say, this is too hard. Before, I could just do what I wanted and not have to worry about it. I have wanted to give up, but these words just ring and echo in my head over and over and over, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where, where else can we go? Where are we going to go? What are we going to do? We know he's real. We know who he is. We know he created all things. We know he's the savior of all men. What are we going to do? Go become a, a naturalist? Humanist, atheist, I would have to tear my brain out and replace it with a sponge in order to do that. I just can't. I can't, I can't deny him. I can't unknow what I know. It can't be done. Where else are we going to go? He alone has the words of eternal life. Who else are we going to turn to? He alone is the Holy One of God. He alone is the one greater than any human being that has ever lived, greater than Moses, greater than David, greater than Abraham. Where else am I going to go? Jesus is God himself wrapped in flesh and blood. This is Peter's confession. These are the words of a true disciple. I can't go anywhere else. Jesus is mine. I am his I got nothing else. That's it. A true disciple knows Jesus to be the Son of God and believes in him for eternal life. And as uh, Leon Morris put it, when a man once knows Jesus, none else can satisfy. That's the reality. For a true disciple, a person who has been made alive by the Spirit of God coming to live inside of you, nothing else will satisfy you. In the case of Peter and the other ten, the words of Jesus in verse 35 just jump off the page here. He says, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will not be hungry, and the one who believes in me will never be thirsty. 
True disciples will abide in Christ because we can do nothing else. Even if everyone walks away, I can go nowhere else. Even if everyone else walks away, I have no one else but Jesus. I can't follow the crowd if they walk away. I can't walk away from him. I have drunk of the living water, and I am no longer thirsty. I have eaten the bread of life, and I am no longer hungry. I'm satisfied in him, and I desire nothing else but to follow him. What else can I do? If you have been set free by the Son, I love to break it to you, there is no going back. There's no going back. He does not withdraw the spirit that he has given to us. True disciples will follow Jesus to the end because they know there is nothing else for them. They are compelled by what they know to be true. There is no alternative. He alone has the words of eternal life. And if one believes in him, he or she will be kept and guarded forever. Period. Without exception. You will endure till the end if you belong to him. King David wrote this way of the Lord in Psalm 73. He says, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was stupid and ignorant. I was like an animal before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken a hold of my right hand. You will guide me with your plan and afterward receive me to glory. Whom do I have in heaven but you? And with you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen. This is the view of God that we need in order to stand firm under trial. Are we going to have trial? Okay, good. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. You're going to have trial. Probably today. Be prepared for it. Have this view of God. Who have I but Him? Where else can I go? To whom else can I go? These are all rhetorical questions. Nowhere. No one. Even if someone close to me turns away. Listen to this. Even if someone close to me turns away. This shakes a lot of people to their core. When someone close to you walks away, even if a Judas rises up, a person that I thought I knew so well, a person that I was partnered with, that I did ministry with, a person in a, in a high position, right? Judas had a position of authority, a person who seems so in, so trustworthy, so among the disciples. Even if that person turns his back on the Lord, what am I going to do? Do I know Jesus in that way that no matter who turns away, I know in whom I have trusted and I can go nowhere else? You guys want to turn to 2 Timothy and we'll, we'll close there. Sorry, I got that shepherd song stuck in my head. For the Lord Second uh, Timothy chapter one. It's right after First Timothy. <laughs> Sorry. Verse eight. 
Actually, let's go from verse 7. Why not? For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to protect what I have entrusted to him until that day. We've got to have the mind of Peter, the mind of Paul, as it pertains to our belief. I know in whom I've trusted. I'm convinced that he is going to keep his word and keep his promise and keep me until he returns for me or until I die and go to be with him. I know him. I know him and I can go nowhere else. Even if every single person I know walks away, I belong to the Son. Amen? All right, let's close there. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you, God, that you have revealed these hard and glorious truths to the foolish things in this world, God. People like us, regular, everyday sinners in desperate need of a Savior, God, we thank you that you have made your Son known to us, that you've opened our eyes to his beauty, his glory, his majesty, and that you have pulled us out of the pit and set our feet on solid ground, a firm foundation that is the Son of God. We thank you, Father, that you are faithful to every promise you've made, that you will raise us up on the last day. We thank you, God, that we have great hope and assurance in your Son. Thank you that you have led us to the bread of life and that we've eaten of him and, and that we've drunk his blood and we've been satisfied in the knowledge of the one and only Savior. And if anyone in this room, Father, has not come to that knowledge, does not have that assurance, Father, would you open their eyes and their hearts even now to receive these things from your word? Would you pierce their hearts, Father? Reveal to them, God, how truly desperate we are. The words of the, the prophet Isaiah would horrify us, God. The weight of sin that is upon every human being, the punishment that awaits, Father, for the things we've done and the, the glorious sacrifice of our Lord in our place to take that upon himself and bear that weight so that we would not have to carry it. We are forever indebted to you, Father, and today, please, God, help us to humble ourselves beneath your word and your instruction and your wisdom, to consider ourselves as we are, created 
fallen humans, God, in need of a gracious and merciful Savior. We thank you that you've provided all. I pray for your saints here today, God, that they will be encouraged in their identity, that they've been washed and covered with the blood of Jesus, and that you would give them boldness, Father, to speak the truth to a dying and fading world, God, without fear, without hesitation, and that you will encourage them, Father, in the fact that you are building your church, that you are calling sinners to yourself through the message of the gospel, and you've called us to be faithful with it, Father, to plant seeds and watch you create the increase. So strengthen us, God. Lift our spirits and our countenance. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.